Father, thank you for the promise that is contained in the words we just sang. You have indeed granted us the keys to the promised land. And so for that we rejoice. We pray now that as we look at your word and we prepare to uh, hear from you, that you, you would speak through my very imperfect and feeble lips for the glory of your name and for the building up of those you brought here tonight. I ask this in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. Well, thanks for coming out tonight, gang, for this Epiphany Sunday. Uh, you know, we just got done with the 12 days of Christmas. I don't know if you know that that's actually a thing, but it is actually a thing. And we just completed it. There is 12 days of Christmas. And now we're moving on to the Feast of Epiphany, what has been known as a feast day, although we're not going to have a feast tonight. Um, and really what it's all about is, is celebrating God's revelation of himself to those outside of Israel or those outside of uh, the Jewish people. And the text that is most significant to sort of show that is a text still having to do with the, the birth of Jesus or his very early uh, years. And it's found in Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. I'm going to read that now. It says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Here ends the reading of God's word. Uh, so a few days before uh, we were to celebrate the birth of our Lord this year, I bundled up the family into the car for an adventure. Uh, like the Magi in our text before us tonight, we were going to go on a little trip, just a tiny jaunt to Bethlehem. It's true. Granted, in their time, being probably from Persia, their journey would be much more complicated and involve, involve vastly more people. Yes, it's true. Uh, in spite of what the song says, there was not just three people, three kings, and they weren't even kings. They were wise men. Uh, but the text never actually tells us how many people there were. Most likely there were scores of people with them to carry all their belongings. I mean, this was not a short trip. 
My trip wasn't quite as involved. My trip involved me packing my wife, kids, mother-in-law into the car and heading west to Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, PA. We were headed there because I had heard that the nickname, fittingly so of course, for Bethlehem, Pennsylvania was Christmas City, USA. And in my mind, I thought that I had been to Christmas City, USA before. In my mind, what Bethlehem was, and I still don't know what town this actually was, maybe some of you from Pennsylvania can help me. A few years ago, I went to a little town that had Christmas lights, and it was like a little village, and they had hot chocolate, and also and Christmas songs playing, and carolers, and things like that, and it was very, very, very Christmassy, and I'm a fanboy of that kind of stuff. And so I thought, when we headed to Bethlehem, PA, that that's what we were heading to. And so we drove the hour and a half to Bethlehem from my house, and shortly after arriving, recognized that this was not at all what I remembered the place to be. Not at all. My boys had no problem reminding me that it was not at all what I had told them it would be. Dad, where are the Christmas lights and the hot chocolate and stuff? Well, that house has lights on it. I mean, you know, my mother-in-law just sat and laughed. Just laughed. Because she knew we had gotten lost. And I was determined. I said, no, 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 no. I know it's here. We're just not in the right spot. And so for about a half an hour, I drove around Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, convinced that if we just made the right turn, we'd get there. Um, I don't like admitting I'm lost. But it turned out the Bethlehem of my imagination was not the Bethlehem I had in mind. It was not the right place. And I gave my kids permission to make fun of me for the rest of their, their lives, as this will be a good memory for them as they get older. Now, I wonder, I wonder if the Magi in our text felt the same way as they pulled up to the small sort of podunk town of Bethlehem. Uh, I wonder if they felt they were being led on a wild goose chase by this strange star in the sky. Could this really be where the king of the Jews was actually hanging out? For that matter, could it really be that he was a baby in this small, dark place? Well, yes, it is into this dark world that our God comes revealing himself as the savior of this dark world. And that's what we're just beginning to celebrate today as we enter into uh, the church's season of epiphany. So what do we see from the text that I just read happens when Christ is revealed or epiphany? That's the, the word epiphany means like revelation. And what does it mean when he's epiphany to our world? Well, I think first you see in verses one through three, uh, he makes the corrupt insiders really nervous. When Jesus comes near, the corrupt insiders start shaking. Listen again. Wise men from the east, probably Persia, modern-day Iran, came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and he had come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Why was Herod, Herod and all Jerusalem with him troubled? 
Well, because they were corrupt as could be. Absolutely corrupt. Herod was a known murderer and power-hungry, paranoid man who was always looking over his shoulder, afraid of who would steal his throne. The rest of the leadership of Jerusalem had been appointed by him, and so they were troubled by this talk of a new king being born. I mean, would this be somebody that could eventually usurp his throne, take his authority? Because, well, if Herod goes, then that means they all go. The whole administration, a whole lot of the leadership. And on top of that, the people asking about the new king are important dignitaries from other countries. And I'll talk about that more in a little bit. And so you can see why this would make Herod and his cohort of leaders nervous. And in some sense, this has always been the way it is throughout history whenever Jesus begins to reveal himself amongst the people. It's always this way, and it still is this way. There's a great story in the book of Acts about the city of Ephesus when they start to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and Jesus starts to save people. Basically, uh, that whole city, the whole area was, the economy was built on the worship of a fertility goddess named Diana. And well, people start to become Christians and they're throwing away their fertility goddess idols and they're throwing away all their books and things and the economy is going to pot. And so what happened? Well, the corrupt insiders get nervous and provoke a riot. You can read about that in the book of Acts. The Martin Scorsese movie, Silence, that came out a few years ago, really depicts this issue wonderfully. Uh, the film tells the story of Christianity in Japan during the 1600s at the time. Uh, the church was growing rapidly enough that those in power began to fear what would happen to their culture if more and more people became Christians. And so what they did was institute horrific persecutions of anyone who claimed to be a Christian. Unless you're prone to thinking that this is something of yesteryear, the reality is the data tells us, that this, the statistics tell us that there's more persecution of Christians today around the world than any other time in recorded history. Matter of fact, we see this playing itself out uh, playing itself out right now in China with a church called Pray for Rain. I don't know if you've heard of this church at all, but the pastor there had the audacity to call the prime minister a sinner who Jesus Christ died for, and him and his wife were promptly arrested and are still being held, as far as I know, as well as many members of their church. So the same sort of thing is precisely what Herod will do in just a few verses after this passage, hoping to stop the child Jesus from growing into an adult threat to his throne. He orders the execution of all baby boys under two years old in Bethlehem. Which, by the way, that gives you an insight as to how long ago they may have first seen this star and how old Jesus may have been, somewhere between zero and two years old at that point in Bethlehem. The same is always true. Just know, the corrupt ones in power, when Jesus Christ is preached, always begin to get nervous when the real Jesus makes his presence known. And yet, I mean, it's easy. It's easy to pick on the bigwigs. It's easy to pick on the Herods of the world and the corrupt politicians. It's easy to look at them, you know. I mean, it's always our tendency, like, if they just got their act together, then, you know, everybody else will be fine. But the, the reality is the Bible pretty clearly teaches that every one of us, in our heart, in our soul, that's why we confess our sin here every week in some form or another, every one of us has this same kind of seed of corruption in us. 
put any of us in the wrong situation and we're capable of things we never imagined doing to protect our reputation or to make sure that we don't go hungry or don't uh, hurt or go through pain. You don't believe me, just watch me after not eating for long enough and you'll see the grumpiest man you've ever met in your whole life. All my pastoral gifts just kind of go flying out the window as I start looking for food, you know. And so we ought to take warning here ourselves. We ought to always be aware ourselves that this same tendency is in us, that, that Jesus can, can, his presence can offend us and make us feel uncomfortable and make us want to, to push him away. And yet, at the same time, as Jesus makes the corrupt insiders feel nervous, he also exalts the powerless. So at the very same moment that he's making Herod feel real shaky, we're reminded that where Jesus is at, where he's staying, is amongst the lowest of the low, in the lowest of the low-type place in Bethlehem. We're used to hearing the song, A Little Town of Bethlehem, around Christmas, and we don't think about how tiny and insignificant it was. There was no more than a thousand people living there at the time. If we were God making the decisions for how to make our mark on the world, we would certainly tell Jesus, no, 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 don't be born there. Be born only six miles away. Go to Jerusalem. There's 600,000 people there. The Roman Empire is swarming there. Make your mark. But most of the time in our world, God chooses to work in the littlest and in the smallest and in the mundane and in the ordinary. He exalts in the low and the powerless. The Old Testament shows this all the time. You have example after example after example of God choosing the secondborn son rather than the firstborn. People like Isaac or Jacob. Now, you say, well, what's the big deal about that? In our day and age, we don't have this same sort of uh, emphasis on firstborn, secondborn, secondborn. But back then, the firstborn was everything. He was the favored one. But over and over and over again, God exalts the second at the expense of the powerful. Or throughout the, the story of the Bible, God so often works through barren women to give them children. Something that was seen as an incredible sign of blessing to a woman in the ancient world. No greater sign. You have people like Rachel and Sarah and later on Elizabeth, John the Baptist's mother. People that were barren, that had no hope of birthing life suddenly being given that ability. And so no matter where you're at, tonight and what you're walking in with, you need to remember that even if you don't change the world, and most likely, I mean, the statistics would show you're not, you're not going to, you're not going to be the next Steve Jobs, or you're not going to be the next uh, major political ruler. You're not going to do something absolutely earth-altering, earth-shattering, Probably most of your life is going to be lived in the mundane and the boring and the, you know, the average and the ordinary. And that's okay. It's great to shoot for great things. But God, God dwells with you just as much in the ordinary and the mundane and in the small. He's with the woman changing the diaper of her newborn child just as much as he could be with the president of any world power. As Luther says, 
God made man out of nothing, and as long as we are nothing, he can make something out of us. And that leads to my last point. When Jesus reveals himself, the corrupt get nervous, the low are exalted, and the outsider is brought in. That's what this season of the church year is all about. It, it, it lasts for a couple months before we get into the season of Lent and Easter, where we look forward to the death and resurrection of Jesus. We celebrate that season. But in Epiphany, we're celebrating the fact that God wants your neighbors to be a part of his kingdom. He wants everyone. For God so loved the world. And I looked it up in Greek, and it turns out world literally means world. Everybody. Everybody's included in that gig. We see that here with the Magi. The Magi were not Jewish, but were from the East. They almost certainly did not worship the Jewish God. It's almost a, a certainty that they did. They were probably Zoroastrians, which was a... It actually still exists today, by the way. It's a religion that still, is, uh, still goes on primarily in Iran today. It consisted mainly of astrology and magical practices. But these guys walking into Jerusalem would have been highly suspect by the religious leadership who were so intent on trying to keep everybody in the fold very, very, very pure. As a matter of fact, a number of scholars believe that there was probably pressure on the writer of this gospel, on Matthew, to keep this story actually out of his account. Because the Magi were not seen as the right kind of people for God to reveal himself to. Like, make it, make it a Jewish hero. Make it somebody that's an insider God, but not, not these pagans from somewhere else that are worshiping a false God. I don't know about that. But God's not concerned with who you think is right or suitable enough for his kingdom. When you think about it, this whole first part of Jesus' story is all about God bringing in people the religious people wouldn't have been comfortable with. First, lowly, unclean, dirty shepherds, and now some magicians who weren't even part of the church. It is this fact that God is constantly going after the others out there, the outsiders that caused this church to be planted and is the reason that we named it Epiphany. It's the whole reason. We wanted something that said in its very name with one word to anybody who ever looked it up that we serve a God who's all about welcoming the outcast, the other, into his presence and welcoming their worship. General William Booth was the founder of the Salvation Army. You might be familiar with that organization. Uh, preached the gospel over much of the world. Organized street meetings and evangelistic services. The Salvation Army wasn't just a service for the poor, although they've become sort of primarily known for that. Uh, but for that matter, they, they still are. They are still a church that's active. Over time, of course, General Booth, like so many, uh, like all, became an invalid. His eyesight failed him, and one year he was in such bad health that he was unable to attend the Salvation Army Convention in London, England. 
And so somebody suggested that uh, General Booth send a telegram or a message to be read at the opening of the convention, and so General Booth agreed to do so. And when the thousands of delegates met, the moderator announced that General Booth would not be able to be present because of failing health and eyesight, and gloom and pessimism swept across the floor of the convention. But the moderator also brought a little cheer back to the room when he told them that General Booth had indeed sent a message for them, sent a telegram. And so, as the crowd waited with bated breath, he opened the message and began to read the following. These are the words of General William Booth, quote, Dear delegates at the Salvation Army Convention, others, signed General Booth. It's really why we exist today, to be a church for others. We put it all over the place on our website, all over our promotional material, as much as that goes out to anybody. Because when Jesus Christ did walk this world, he grew his movement not by ingratiating himself with the religious or political elites of his day, but deliberately went looking for the others. To those who had been excluded by the religious establishment, he said, follow me. To those deemed threats by the political class, he said, come to me. His message was a message of redemption for all. The rich and the poor and the powerful and the powerless and the righteous and the unrighteous. To every member of every race, to the sick, the marginalized, the guilty, the dirty, the messy, the condemned, the outsider. He proclaims that through their, that though their sins are as scarlet, he has made them white as snow. He proclaims to all people, God wants you. God includes you. God loves you. As he said, his mission statement was, I have come to seek and save the lost. So as disciples of him, Epiphany's mission has to be to follow in his footsteps. Embrace the outsider with the truth that the Lord of heaven and earth wants them. To welcome those with questions and doubts about Christianity and to wrestle openly and honestly with those questions. Our mission is to rush to the poor with food and clothing and as much as we can give to provide for their needs. Our mission is to let the people of New York City know that in this place, there is a church that will at least try, fail, but try, to love everyone from every place in life. It is one of my great joys when I see new people walk into this place and people that have been here for a while immediately welcome them in. It is, I'm telling you, it is like seeing a slice of heaven on earth for me. Because it reminds me again and again and again. We're a church for others. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that just as you are the God who seeks out others like these magi, these outsiders, you have given us the gift of seeking out others as well. 
to be your hands and feet for them, to get sweaty and bloody and dirty for them, to invite them in. Lord, help us not be afraid to be timid, but help us, help us, Father, to invite people to where they can get the bread of life and living water that never runs out. I thank you that every week you meet us here with your body and your blood for the forgiveness of all our sins. Oh God, you are faithful and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.